theyeshiva.net. We begin today, Be'ezer Hashem Yisbarach, a new mimer, a very special, powerful mimer. This is a discourse by the Lubavitcher Rebbe, presented Lagba Oimer Tovshin Yud Aleph. 33rd day of the Omer, the 18th of year. As usual, please open your source sheets so you could follow along inside in the text. And, as always, if you go to theyeshiva.net, you'll see that the first video, first video on top, it should say Class Monday, Monday Class, Maimer Sviris Omer, and when you open it, below the video, something called download, and when you open download, you could see, when you click on download, you can download the source sheets onto your computer or print them out, or simpler, on top of the video, there's view source sheets, or hide source sheets, after view, and when you click on that, you'll see the source sheet near the video, you can also enlarge it. Let's begin. It would be worthwhile to mention that this is one of the first Maimorim, the first discourses that was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe just a few months after he assumed the position of Lubavitcher Rebbe. The Rebbe assumed the position of leadership of Chabad Lubavitch on Yudshvat Tovshin Yud Aleph, the first anniversary of the Yartzet of his father-in-law, the sixth Lubavitcher Rebbe, the Rebbe Rayatz, who passed away Yudshvat Tovshin Yud, the 10th of Shvat, 1950. One year later, at the first Yartzet, the Rebbe said his first Maimer, known as Basi Legani Achaisi Kala, Pasuk and Shashirim, Chapter 5, Tovshin Yud Aleph. And this was one of, Lagbaim was just a few months later, obviously, so this is one of the first Maimarim, the first discourses that was presented by the Lubavitcher Rebbe after he became a Rebbe back in 1951. Let's begin. This Maimer focuses completely on the mitzvah of Sirius Haimer, counting the Haimer, which is the unique mitzvah of these days, beginning with the second day of Pesach, all the way till Shavuos, as we know, we count the 49 days. And the mitzvah is rooted in a verse in Parshas Emmer, Leviticus chapter 23, Emmer Perik of Gimel. And this is a pasuk we say each night after we count the Emmer. Usfartem lachem, you should count to you, you should count, mimacharas ha-Shabbos, from the morrow of the Shabbos, the day after Shabbos. Miyoyim aviyachim asemir from the day that you bring the Oimer, Oimer is a measurement of flour. Hatnufa, which is to be waved. From that day, the Pasa continues. Sheva Shabbos The count should continue for seven whole weeks. Ad Until after seven weeks. And then comes, Vikrafta, then comes the holiday of Shavuos. We count 49 days followed by the holiday of Shavuos, which is on the 50th day. V'hainu, what we see in this Pasuk, says the Rebbe, Shepetchi l'tzorech liyas mitzvahs, havas, oimer atunufu. V'achakach mitzvah sviris oimer. 
First, you have the mitzvah of bringing the offering of the flower, bringing the oimer. And then comes the mitzvah of counting. Because take a look at the pasuk. The first mitzvah is to bring the oimer atnufa. And then from the day that you bring it, now there's a new mitzvah, a second mitzvah. What's the second mitzvah? To start a count, which will continue from this day, and it will continue for the next 49 days. What is this mitzvah of bringing the Emirat Nufa? Very briefly, the Torah commands that during when the Beis HaMikdash stood, when the, sang, when the temple, the holy temple stood in Jerusalem, or before that, the Mishkan, on the second day of Pesach, the 16th of Nisan, which is called Mimacharas HaShabbos, the day after Shabbos, meaning the day after Yom Tif. The first day of Pesach is the day of Shabbos, Yom Tif. Shabbos means a day of rest. Yom Tif is also Shabbos. The day after Shabbos, the 16th of Nisan, which is the second day of Pesach, but it's already Chil HaMayed in Israel, in the Holy Land. We do two days, but in the, in the Holy Land is only one day, first day of Yom Tif. That's the Memachra, that was the next day. There was a mitzvah to bring it right away in the morning. They would cut it the night before. They would harvest barley, and grind it, and, uh, and, and of course go through all the process, processing the barley, until they extracted the kernels. The kernels had to be grinded, and they had barley flour. It was refined, very, they refined it again and again, 13 sieves. And then they brought a measurement called oimer. Oimer is a certain measurement, a certain volume of flour, basically 43, a volume of 43.2 eggs. And this was known as the carbon oimer. Part of it, part of it, was burnt on the altar, on the Mizbeach, consumed by the fires of the Beis HaMikdash. This is called the carbon oimer. So this is a, a, a meal, a meal offering. It's not an animal. It's a meal offering, barley flour, burnt on the Mizbeach. And the rest was baked as matzah, First of all, it was Pesach, and generally all the menaches, the meal offerings, were matzah, at least most of them, were matzah, and the kayanim would eat, would eat it. This was the carbon oimer. This is called bringing the oimer, and it had to be waved. Oimer tenufa, that's why it's called tenufa, had to be waved. From when you bring it, you have to start a count. Okay, I hope it's clear. If it's not clear, you can ask. In the section when we're going to stop for questions. So this was the offering of the Oymer. That's why it's called Sfira Sa'oymer, the count of the Oymer. What does it mean, the count of the Oymer? Many people don't know what it means. Oymer is a measurement. It's mentioned in the Parshas B'Shalach about the mana. Vaha Oymer Asiris Sa'efer. It's known as a tenth of an eighth. It's a measurement. It's a measurement of, in this case, flour. And this is the count connected to this measurement that was brought as an offering in the Vesa Mikdash. The Rebbe continues, Mitzvah l'mimne yoyme, Mitzvah l'mimne shavuah. The Gemara says in Menachas, Dav Samach Vav, and that's the halacha, that the mitzvah of counting is both counting the weeks, and counting the, counting the days and counting the weeks. This will be discussed later in the Maimur in detail, that we learn out from the Pesukim that there's two counts. There's a count of days and there's a count of weeks. So for example, last night, two nights ago, we counted Hayoyim Arba Asayoyim, Today's 14 days. That would have been enough, but no, we added. It's two weeks, La'aymer. Last night we counted. Hayom Chamisha Asayom. 15 days, that's enough, but we didn't, we didn't, we were not satisfied. We counted also the weeks. 
15 days is two weeks and one day. Now you might ask, it's superfluous. If it's 15 days, we all know that it's two weeks and one day. You don't have to be a rocket scientist. That will be discussed in the Maimah. But the Gemara tells us, Amara Meimar, mitzvah l'mimna yoyme, mitzvah l'mimna shu. It's a mitzvah to count both. Shemitzvah zuhi benavasar, melechag ha-shavuos. And as this Pasuk indicates, this mitzvah applies between the, during the period between the bringing of the Oymer, which was the second day of Pesach and the holiday of Shavuos. You have that 49-day count. All seems clear and wonderful. We have to understand what is difficult to understand is the phraseology of this verse that you should start counting from the day after Shabbos. The Torah is very ambiguous. The Torah doesn't mean you should start counting a day after Shabbos. That would be Sunday. What's Machras HaShabbos? The morrow of the Shabbos is Sunday. The Torah means you should start counting the day after Pesach. The second day of the holiday of Pesach. So it should have said, Mimacharas HaPesach, from the morrow of Pesach, which means Tezayinus, the 16th of Nis. Now you might say, okay, the Torah used the expression, Macharas HaShabbos, fine. But no, Torah is meticulous. And not only this, as we're going to see, this triggered a tremendous controversy. During the era of the Second Temple, there was a sect of the Jewish people known as Sadducees or Tzedukim. The Tzedukim rejected the tradition and the authority of the sages who transmitted what's called Torah Pet, the oral commentary of Chumash, transmitted throughout the generations already from Moshe Rabbeinu. Here, there was a key argument. The Tzedukim said that you have to start counting the Omer always on a Sunday. Every single year, Sviris Omer starts on a Sunday. No matter when Pesach is, I don't care when Pesach is. Pesach can happen to be Shabbos. Take this year. This year, the first Seder was when? Mitzvah Shabbos. So the first day of Pesach was Sunday. So the Tzedukim would say, you don't count the Omer Monday, we started to count the Omer Sunday night, the day after the first day of Pesach, Machras Pesach. They would say, never. You always start counting the Omer Mitzvah Shabbos, the day after Shabbos, Machras Shabbos, which, by the way, means that it's seven complete weeks because it starts Sunday, so it always ends one week, two weeks, three weeks, four weeks, five weeks, seven weeks. You count seven weeks. So it always ends also Shabbos, which means Shavuos is always Sunday, according to the Tzedukim, because day 50 comes after day 49, and day 50 is Shavuos. And they said it says, Mimacharas HaShabbos, doesn't say Mimacharas HaPesach. And there's a whole discussion in Gemara, Menachas Dav Samachei, Dav Samachvav, a long discussion, where the Chachmi saw the sages of Israel had to debate them, and prove to them that they were wrong. That in this case, the Torah means HaPesach, not Mimacharas HaShabbos. And there's a lot of proofs. The Rambam discusses it at length in Hilchist Midinu Musafir. In addition to it being the tradition that Jews counted the Omer from the second day of Pesach, not from a Sunday, sometimes it happens to be Sunday. 
if the first day of Pesach is Shabbos, if the Seder is Friday night, so then, indeed, Sviris HaOmer happens to be Memacharas HaPesach and Memacharas HaShabbos. But that's unique. That's rare. In most years, it's not that way. Sviris HaOmer could be Sunday. Sviris HaOmer could start on a Monday also, like this year. Asks the Rebbe, if this is the case, why did the Torah have to say Memacharas HaShabbos? And now there's room for a debate and a disputation. You could have just said clearly, Memacharas HaPesach. Base. will understand this by first introducing an explanation and the general theme. What is the counting of the Mishnah? The Mishnah says, all the meal offerings in the Beis HaMikdash were brought from wheat. There were two exceptions. The Mincha of the Saita and the Mincha of the Aymer, which means there was a particular situation, a particular mitzvah that's recorded in the Book of Numbers in Bamidbar in Parshish Nasa. And this refers to a couple, a relationship that was going through hard times. The husband felt that the wife is disloyal and she's betraying him and this marriage was on the rocks. He told her, he warned her in front of witnesses, he says, I do not want you to seclude yourself in a private room with this and this individual who he was suspicious of. And they were spending apparently a lot of time together. And she did not listen and she went into private seclusion with this person. He does not trust her, he feels that she crossed the red lines. And this woman is known as a saita. What happens now? This marriage, he doesn't trust her. He feels that this marriage has to dissolve. So the Rebbeinah Shalom, the master of the universe, says in Parshish Nasa, I will act as the family therapist. I will be the personal therapist of this couple. Can't get a better therapist than God. And he brings her to the Beis HaMikdash. And she drinks water, water from the Beis HaMikdash, which had in it dissolved parchment with the Parsha of Saita, on it, and there was a little earth in the water. This was specially potent water. She also brought an offering, a meal offering from barley. If she was innocent, they didn't, they didn't tell her she has to drink the water. It was her choice. She can admit and say, you know what, this marriage is over. I'm interested in somebody else. I went to somebody else, and then they'll just get divorced. There won't be any penalties because there were no witnesses. There was just witnesses that she was secluded, but not more. So she'll just get divorced. But if she refuses to, to admit, she says, no, I'm innocent. My husband is wrong. I, mean, I was in a room with somebody, okay? She'll drink the water, and God will be the therapist. If she emerges healthy and unscathed, we know that she's right. And if not, the water is lethal. Now, which husband afterwards is going to say, God says that she's a great wife, she's innocent, she's wonderful, but I disagree with God. So Hashem himself, it's a very powerful mitzvah, Hashem himself mixed into the relationship, he mixed into the marriage. At some point it stopped working, the famous Ramban in Parshas Nasai, that there were so many adulterers and the men were guilty. This only works if the man is perfectly innocent. And he's completely loyal and dedicated to the marriage. So Hashem says, I'm going to intervene to make sure that there is the highest level of peace and harmony and love. 
But if the man himself is playing games, this whole thing doesn't work, and that's why at some point it stopped working towards the end of the second base. There were too many adulterers. That's what the Mishnah says at the end of sight. Fascinating mitzvah. Misunderstood mitzvah. But fascinating mitzvah. The Gemara says from here you learn the power of peace between a wife and a husband. Hashem says we're going to dissolve my name. You write his name on parchment, that portion, and then erase it in the water. It gets dissolved in the water which is something usually prohibited to do, just to be able to rescue a marriage. This was the one meal offering that was brought that was barley. All the other meal offerings, every day there was a meal offering brought, called a mincha, on Shabbos and Yom Tif and the weekdays. People would bring minchas as donations. Sometimes people would bring meal offerings as diff- for different reasons. Obligations or contributions. But they were all from wheat. Minchas knoyes. Minchas knoyes means the meal offering that was brought as a result of the, of the, of the zealousness or the caution of the husband. This came from barley. And one more meal offering came from barley. Which one? You guessed it. The carbon oimer. The offering that was brought for the community on the second day of Pesach. Why did this woman's offering come from barley? So the Mishnah in Sait Dafyu Dalit explains that traditionally wheat was the staple food of humans, for humans. Barley was the animal fodder. So usually we bring a meal offering from wheat. But this person's behavior was Masa Maisa Behem. We know that most mammals are not monogamous. They don't maintain a loyalty in a relationship. So this is what this meal offering represents that Masa Maisa Behemah Karbana Michael Just as these actions were not the ideal actions of a human being who needs to be loyal in a marriage, both on the side of the husband and the side of the wife, each one in their own way. So her offering is also an offering of animal fodder. That explains the meal offering of the Saita woman. But what about the meal offering that was brought on the second day of Pesach before the count of the Oymer? Why was that brought from barley and not from wheat? What's the explanation? On the first minchah, the Mishnah gives us a wonderful explanation. What about Sviris Haimer offering? And the explanation in this is known. This is a famous explanation of the Balatanya. In the Kutatayr, in a few places, Shazel the Bahamas. Because the main work of the counting of the Oymid is to work with your animal soul. So therefore the meal offering has to be from animal fodder. In other words, Sviris HaOymid begins a new era in the calendar where the focus is on working, dealing with, sublimating, negotiating, discovering, and really transforming or elevating, inspiring vivifying my animal consciousness, my nefesh Bahamas. That's going to be the focus of this maimer. So therefore, the appropriate offering is animal fodder. What does that represent? You're bringing the animal to God. You're bringing the animal to the Beis HaMikdash. 
not the animal itself, animal fodder. You're bringing the food of the animal and that's becoming the offering of the Omer. Because the whole focus of Spirit Omer is going to be what? Is going to be on the birur, on the sublimation, the inspiration of my animal consciousness. And by the way, this is one of the reasons there's a custom in some communities, including in Chabad, that during the days of Sviris Ha'imah, they learn every year Mesecha Soita. Soita has 49 pages, Mem Tes Dafim, has 49 pages, which corresponds to the 49 days of Sviris Ha'imah. Mesecha Shvuas also has that number. Some people learn Shvuas, which means oaths, but I guess it also means weeks, Shvuas. But the, the custom in many communities is to learn Mesecha Soita. So it's not just because 49, 49, every night of Svira, every day you learn one daf and you finish it by Shavuos. But there's a much deeper reason because these are the only two meal offerings that were brought from barley. Because the idea here is that there's something similar between the Avoida of the Saita and the work of Svira Sa'imah with my Nefesh Abahamas, with my animal soul. And as it says in Zohar, <coughs> that after the Saita drinks the water, and she comes out unscathed, she becomes even healthier, she goes back to her husband. And that's what happens, Shavuos. Shavuos is the time of intimacy, the time of intimacy, and one is between Hashem and the Jewish people. What does this mean that the time of Sri Yisrael is focused on working with our animal soul? So here begins the explanation of Biyarenyin, the third paragraph of Biyarenyin. <coughs> I'm just a little horse. I'm going to go catch. Uh, I'm going to catch a drink. So please, uh, you'll have recess for like uh, two minutes. Okay, you could re- learn the mimer or meet your friends in class. Say hi to your friends. Okay, my wife didn't want you to have recess. She said she'll bring me the coffee. And the explanation in this Indian is the the revelation that happens on Pesach, the first time Pesach, and every year on Pesach, the first day of Pesach is known as the Sarusa de la Ela. Sarusa de la Ela is an expression of Zohar, but it's often brought in the writings of Chabad Chassidus, especially in the Kudotayr of the Balatanya, many times, which means the arousal from above. Isarusa, like the word Hisairus, arousal, inspiration, Dila'ela that comes from above. Meaning, it's a gift from Hashem. The first day of Pesach, there was an arousal from above, mitzad atzma, independently of a person. As the Pasuk says in Shmois, Hashem tells Moshe, When you take out this nation from Egypt, you will serve Hashem at this mountain. Hainu, Tavdun begins after the exodus of Egypt. The exodus of Egypt itself is an arousal that comes it comes from above, it's a gift. It's like a dosage of, of nuclear inspirational energy that's given to the person. You're schlepped out of the mud. You're schlepped out of the abyss of Egypt. But then Hashem says, when I take you out of Egypt, now, the focus here is not so much, he's not talking here about the mountain, he's talking the Tavda. Now is going to start, your work, your work, your service. That's stage two. 
Before stage two, there's stage one, which is I'm taking you out. This is the deeper meaning of the Pasuk. In Shehashirim chapter one, verse four. Shehashirim perek alav Pasuk talat. Now tune into this Pasuk, because this Pasuk becomes <coughs> one of the fundamental ideas in this Maimon. Mashcheni acharecha narutso heviani hamelech hadorov. The bride, Shir Hashirim, is of course a poem, a song about the powerful relationship of Ani Ledoidi Vedoidi Li. The young man and the young woman who have deep, deep emotions towards each other. I belong to Doidi, to my beloved, and my beloved belongs to me as the expression in Shir Hashirim more than once. So she says to him, she says, Moshcheni, draw me in, pull me in, Zaymer Moshech, Tzimir Arayin in Yiddish. After you we shall run. The king has brought me into his chambers. Now, when you read this passage, grammatically, your antennas, your alarms should go off in the brain. Why? It starts off Lashen Yachit. It continues Lashen Rabbim. And then it speaks about the past. <laughs> it starts off Lashen Yachit, future. Lashen Rabbim, future. And then back to Lashon Yachid, the past. I don't know if you realize. Let's see. Draw me in. So we're talking about me. Draw me in. After you, we shall run. You just said me. Should have said, Mashcheni acharecha orutza. No. After you, we shall run. And then we, the king brought me into his chambers. Pshat is, Mashcheni kaya lagilim di itzis mitzayim shayabadarech chizurus delayla. Mashcheni is representing the revelations during the exodus of Egypt, which came as an arousal from above, as we say in the Haggadah, the King of Kings, Hashem, revealed Himself to the Jewish people and redeemed them. The Jewish people on their own were submerged, as the Gemara, as the Zayher says, in 49 gates of impurity. However, from above, they had a revelation, something that transcended their own identity at the time. And that's Pshat. Mashcheni, draw me. When somebody is Moshech you, you are where you are. And then I'll come in and I'll schlep you. I'll pull you out from where you are and I'll bring you to me. Mashcheni, draw me in pull me out, this is something that's applied, it's, it's, it's related to the person who's pulling you. I, myself, I'm just passive. That's why it says, me. Because this revelation, it moved, hazaza means it moved. It inspired only the divine soul. Because only the divine soul feels, it detects, when there's a revelation from above. The animal soul doesn't feel it, doesn't have the antennas to be able to detect. The nefesh is on fire. The nefesh says, what's the party? What's happening? I don't know. I'm sorry, I don't feel anything. Soon we're going to see Narutza. That's something else. Mashcheini is only... The Lashon Yachid, it only relates to the Nefesh HaLakis, doesn't relate to the Nefesh Bahamas, Because the Nefesh Bahamas doesn't have the sensitivity. It's an animal soul. An animal is an animal. Animals are cute, but they're animals. <laughs> we have nothing, we love animals. Animals are very special.
You know, I talk a lot about animals in this year. <laughs> so we all have a little animal inside of us. That animal could be very, very cute. You know, you have little cute puppies, and then you have scary elephants or hippopotamuses or rhinoceroses or, or wild cheetahs, tigers, lionesses, polar bears. You got to be careful. Every person has a different type of nefesh abahamah. Some people have a little cute, little cute puppy that runs around in your heart, um, a little cute monkey. But some of us have big chimpanzees or big, big gorillas. And, you know, chimps share 98 or 99% of their DNA with humans because that's the Nefesh Bahamas. The Nefesh Bahamas is a chimpanzee. So there's a small chimpanzee, still cute, but if he gets out of control <laughs> and you don't train him, he could get a little monstrous or a lot monstrous. The point is you can't expect from the animal soul to detect the Giluyim of Pesach. You can't. It's not fair. It's like a deaf person, you'll bring him into a concerto, to a concert hall, and say, how are you enjoying the concert? It's not fear. He doesn't have the ability to be able to sense the music. You'll take a blind person, Khalil, into an art gallery. How are you enjoying the art? They can hear music, but they can't see the art. The person has never seen in their life, or became blind later. You have to know what a person is capable of. You have to have the antennas, that allow you to detect, to experience something transcendence. Transcendence can be experienced by the Nefesh Alakis. The Nefesh Alakis will feel it like this in an instance. What does he say? Ahazaza. It's going to make ahazaza. It's going to move the godly soul. But the animal soul, just, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know why you guys are excited. There's nothing happening here. <laughs> And this is why it says, Paro, it says in the beginning of Bashalach, They told Paro, the king of Egypt, that the nation fled. What, what does it mean the nation fled? They fled. He gave them permission to go. He told them to go. In the middle of the night, he woke up and he called to Moshe and Aaron and he said, Kumu Arois, Get out of here. That's not called running away. If the master himself, the king himself, dictated and instructed you to leave, and not only that, they were rushed to Jews so much that they couldn't allow the, the sourdough to inflate. The starter couldn't make its magic. They had to bake flat breads, matzah. Like his speak, but they rushed them out. So what do you mean? They didn't run away. They went with your consent. So what does Rashi say? Because Moshe deceived Pari. Moshe told him we're leaving only for three days. And Pari sent messengers with the Jewish people. After three days, the Jews weren't coming back. So the messengers come back. Ikturin shalachimam, Chazal say. Ikturin messengers. They come back to Pari and they say, Oh, these guys fled. They seized the opportunity. They were supposed to have a three-day holiday, as our European friends say. And after the three-day holiday, they fled. Vayir Rabbeinu Azakin says, the Alter Rebbein Tanya, Pei of chapter 31, the quote of the Alter Rebbein. This is so strange. Why did this happen this way? If the Jews and Moshe Rabbeinu would have told Pari the truth, 
that he has to send them away forever, for good. He has to emancipate them for eternity. Would he have not been forced to send them away? Any way you look at it, it doesn't make sense. If this was coming from parish kindness and his own goodwill, and he didn't agree even for three days until after the ten plagues. The only reason Pari agreed for three days at this point was because he was brought to his knees after the tenth and final plague. If that's the case, Pari at this point didn't have a choice. Moshe could have told Pari, Pari, we are going and we are never looking back. We are never going to return to this soil. He could have said the truth. And Pari would have said, get out of here, leave, just leave. The man had no choice. His empire was crumbling. His empire was devastated. Every home was devastated with the death of the firstborn. Marcus Pcheris. He himself was afraid of his own imminent demise. At this point, he was brought to his knees, asks al why did Moshe have to say we're going for three days? And then they don't come back. And then Pari says they ran away. They could have just been open with him and say, Pari, we're never coming back. And Pari would have given them permission and they wouldn't run away. The Pshat is, says the Alter Rebbe, Elo, from here we understand that the Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim had to happen in a way of escaping. The exodus of Egypt could only come about through an escape. There had to be the drama of escape. I, he gave them permission. So Moshe had to make it in a way where he concocted the story that it's three days. And Pari agreed. And now they didn't come back after three days, meaning they fled. In other words, it didn't start off that Moshe said three days, and therefore they ran away. It's the other way around. Moshe knew that the Jewish people have to flee Egypt. How are they going to flee Egypt? Pari is giving them permission. So that's why Moshe told them we're going for three days. And when they don't come back, now they're called. They, 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 they are, they are uh, people who are escaping. So now the question is, why do you have to flee Egypt? Says It's all a quote from the Tanya. Because at that point, there was still a lot of brokenness, a lot of toxicity that was very powerful in the souls of the Jewish people. And therefore, if they would not run away, they would never be able to leave Egypt. You see, they weren't running away from Parai. They were running away from the Parai inside of them. They were running away from the evil that lurked inside of them. I can take you out of Egypt, but I can't always take Egypt out of you. You can take a Jew out of exile, but can you take the exile out of the Jew? They used to say you can take a Jew out of Russia, you can't take Russia out of the Jew. What does this mean? This means that I have to run away. Because I'm running away from a voice that's inside of me. There was an element of Mitzrayim that remained in the heart of the slave even after he runs away. And that is a very comforting idea. Because it means that you're going to have voices that tell you you don't belong going free. You belong home in the house of slavery. Come back. We spoke before Pesach a few classes about the idea of, 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 of stealing the Afikoyman, right? Stealing the mind of, of Parai, stealing the blessings, all the same idea. It's the voice in you that says, you're a thief, you're a ganav, you're a fugitive, you escaped prison, come back, come back. That's not a voice outside, that's a voice inside. Can I go free or not? So Moshe says, we're going to have to run away. 
Who are you running away from? You're running away from a part of yourself. You're running away from your own traumatized victimhood. You're running away from your own triggers. You're running away from those toxic thoughts that tell you that you have to remain in prison for eternity. You're running away from the voice inside of you that says that you're not allowed to be successful. You have to be depressed. You have to be miserable. You're running away from the voice inside of you that tells you to be afraid of your own success, of your own light. It wants to make sure that you remain a loser. Anybody knows about this voice? Rabbi Daniel, they have it in England, this voice. Really? The English didn't emancipate themselves from it? Okay. Welcome to the human race. So this is a mighty de kivart. Al-Tarebbe tells us in Tanya, Kivarach ha'am. Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim has to happen through Brich. What does it say when Mashiach comes? The Navi Yeshaya says, You're not going to run, you're not going to rush. Nobody's going to escape. What's the difference? The difference is Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim represents stage one in history. Stage one in personal emancipation. Stage one is that Pare inside of me is still alive and well. And he's screaming, Ganev! Get back, you thug. You're a slave. You're a slave. You're a slave. Battered woman syndrome or Stockholm syndrome. You come back here, I'll take care of you. This is where you belong. This is addictive thinking. You know, you thought again, your thought process repeats itself again and again and again, telling you why you belong here. We don't even realize it's happening. It's so deeply embedded. When you become aware of it, that's when you become redeemed. So you have to say, I'm running away. You got to run and don't look back. Why? Because if you look back, you're going to get pulled right back in. The forces are too powerful. The gravitational forces are pulling you back into Egypt. That's what he says in Tanya. When Mashiach comes, it represents a new stage in history where the whole world agrees with you, where there is totality, there is wholeness, there is organic, holistic clarity and oneness. So therefore you don't have to run from yourself. Because even the voices that tell you you belong in Egypt, you're going to see that the depth of those voices, deep, deep inside, they're also trying to heal you. But that's a very powerful level of development. So then you can go come, you don't have to run. Back to the oisius, to the terminology of this the revelation only moved the divine soul. The animal consciousness was not moved. It remains intact. So because of the animal soul, you have to run. Because the revelation of Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim came from above. The Jews on, the, on their own were not the vessels for this. They're very powerful. They were not ready for it. They were being transported into a place that transcended them. Their animal soul was not, was not open to this. It was not integrated in the animal soul. So who feels the gilui? The nefesh People often will sense a moment of inspiration and then it will dissipate. It's like a fleeting moment of excitement. 
So often they accuse themselves of being liars and hypocrites and ganavim. The truth is, no, no, your nefesh alikis has antennas. The nefesh alikis feels it. But the nefesh Bahamas says, I don't know what you want, stop bothering me. That's what happened. It's a real it's a real experience. But it's not integrated into my system. My animal consciousness is not a keli for it. Now, what do we mean by animal consciousness? We keep on saying animal consciousness, uh, divine consciousness. By the way, this whole discussion is in Tanya chapter 31. You could look it up in Tanya. And there he makes the contrast between the Geula of Mitzrayim and the Geula of Mashiach. Quoting the Pasuk in Yeshaya, Yeshaya Hanavi, who says, you're not going to leave. Now, Rabbeinu Chaim Vital, this great student of the Arizal, has a sefer called Shara Kedusha, Shara Kedusha, Shara Kedusha. This is a sefer Eitz Chaim. And he, he postulates the famous idea, which is quoted in the first chapter of Tanya, and it's the basis of Tanya, that every single Jew has two souls, Nefesh Alekis and Nefesh Bahamas, a godly soul and an animal soul. Or in other words, we operate on two levels of consciousness. The level of consciousness that is an animal level of consciousness. We are animals. We're sophisticated animals, homo sapiens, but we're part of the zoological species. We share DNA, most of our DNA with animals. We have similar concerns to animals. We have similar emotions to animals, or animals have similar emotions to us. You know, the the psychologists and scientists and naturalists get very excited when they discover different interesting traits and characteristics in animals, empathy and emotions, and mida connected mida quid per quo, and uh, verbal communication, different sounds. It's, it's, very, it's very interesting, right? Different types of emotions, jealousy and envy and competitiveness and cruelty and gener- cruelty felt in the jungle, but generosity, benevolence, and so forth. And they... Really, sometimes there's an agenda. The agenda is that we and the animals are more or less, <laughs> more or less the same. Charles Darwin wrote in The Origin of Species that one of the most uh, important conclusions of his theory is that there's no fundamental difference between a human being and an animal. Now, that's a tragic conclusion. There is a fundamental difference between a human being and an animal. Maybe for some people there's no difference between a human being and an animal. But that's the great revolution of Beratius, the great revolution of the opening of the Bible. There is a fundamental between a human and an animal. But the only way you'll understand the difference is if you first understand the similarities. <laughs> what makes us different than animals is that we are actually so similar to animals. If we weren't similar to animals, okay, we're different than animals, we're a whole different species. The fact is that we're so similar to animals, and yet there's something in us that sets us apart from the animal. The Nefesh Bahamas really represents the basic biological consciousness of a person which puts us in the zoological species. It's called Homo sapiens. It's much more sophisticated, yes. It's much more developed. It's much more powerful. It has tremendous abilities and skills and talents that animals don't have. True. But that's only a development within the world of Bahamas. So it's called Nefesh Bahamas. And that's a very powerful idea. That there is, I can operate my whole life on the level of consciousness of Nefesh Bahamas. I can do that. 
It's a full soul. It's a, it's a full system of life called the animal soul in Afrisha Bahamas. We have a second soul. The second soul is an Afrisha It's a godly soul. The godly soul is another level of consciousness or a deeper level of consciousness, not another, a deeper level of consciousness, which is the human being, the human soul. As the Alter Rebbe puts it, I'm by Adam, it says Hashem blew into his nostrils a soul of life. Blow. What's blow? The rest of the world is spoken into existence. The Neshama is blowing into existence. The difference, of course, is speech represents an external expression of energy. You could speak for hours, not get exhausted. Some speech will speak for years, they don't get exhausted. Blowing is very exerting. A Baltike, you blow the shoifer after 10 seconds, 20 seconds, at some point you're going to have to stop because your whole pnimi is, your kishkas come out. The neshama nefesh alakis represents something that's a chelik eleikami mal mamash. It's a piece of the divine. It's a divine consciousness. There's an element in the person, the core of the person, that is a fragment of God, a fragment of heaven, a ray of infinity. It's a piece of Hashem. I read an article by the late Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, so he said very interestingly, he says the Nefesh Bahamas is associated with what we call today the limbic brain. In neuroscience today, there's a huge focus on the different parts of the brain. There's what's called the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. There's the limbic brain, the amygdala of the brain, which some call the reptilian brain. It's the reptilian brain. In other words, Nefesh Bahamas, Because that's the brain that's responsible for survival. It focuses very much on a level of consciousness of fight or flight. It's busy protecting itself. And it's extremely cautious to any danger. And we need it. It's like the alarm system that helps you survive, especially in moments of danger. Problem is, when the amygdala takes over, and uh, the alarm system is always going off, and I'm always in that mode. And that's what trauma sometimes does. And then you have higher parts of the brain, the emotional element of the brain capable of emotions. Then you have the prefrontal cortex, where there is the capability of long-term vision and morality and understanding what's right and delaying gratification and seeing the bigger picture. So we see pushed in science, different parts of the brain that are capable of different ways of experiencing the world and reaching different thought and, and developing different thought processes which bring out different conclusions. But generally, we have our two souls. I could live in two different souls, the Nefesh Abama and the Nefesh Alikis. And this is one of the most foundational teachings that pervades the whole first section of Tanya that at every moment of life I have to choose in which level of consciousness I'm going to reside, where I'm going to live. I'm going to live in my Nefesh Bahamas, and therefore my reactions will be coming from that place, or I'm going to be living in my Nefesh Alikas. Can I get rid of the dichotomy? I don't get rid of the dichotomy. I learn to integrate 
both levels of consciousness. That's the focus of this moment. So therefore, Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim spoke to the Nefesh HaLikis. The Nefesh HaLikis's antennas are very spiritually sensitive. The Nefesh HaLikis is divinity. It sees the world from a divine perspective. It sees the world from the perspective of organic, holistic oneness. It sees the person as a manifestation of divine infinity. That's the Nefesh HaLikis. And it gets moved, it gets moved by the inner music of creation. The expression that we had in the previous Maimah, you remember before Pesach? Koyach HaPoyel Benifel. It sees the Koyach HaPoyel Benifel. It sees the, the spiritual, organic energy behind the universe. The Nefesh of Bahamas is a good animal, it's a cute animal. <laughs> it's a puppy. I want to eat. <laughs> I want to survive. I want to feel good. Nefesh Bahamas is threatened. It's going to do everything to survive. Everything to survive. It just wants to, wants to survive. That's what it needs. It wants to survive. It wants to feel good. So Zerebbe says, so that's why the Yitzhiyah Shemitzayim was Mashcheni of the Nefesh HaLikis. Amnam, Achre HaGilid Yitzhiyah Shemitzayim HaYin Svidesayim Meshuin Yenavaydem Almat Alamayla. After Yitzhiyah Mitzrayim now begins stage two. And that's Avoide Milmatelamayla. It's not anymore a flow from above, but rather working from below. Alzenemar Acharecha Norutza. After you we shall run. Ainu She'ein Zeba'oifen the Mashcheni Milmayla Lamata. Ela Ba'oifen Sha'aritza Himei Atzmai Alein Loifen. Shazui Avoide B'derech Milmatelamayla. Mashcheni is draw me in. I'm passive. After you, we shall run. Now I'm running. Now it's my initiative. Now it's not me, it's we. Mashcheni only relates to the Nefesh Elikis. The Nefesh Bahamas is out of the picture. Integration. Now... I'm working with me, I'm working with my amygdala, with my limbic brain, with my reptile, with the animal inside of me, with my animal consciousness. I'm working through my own issues, I'm working through my own reactions to life. I'm working through the consciousness of my animal soul, being aware of what is happening and helping it to climb up the ladder of awareness and enlightenment after you, we shall run. All the parts of me. It's not just me, it's we. Because inside of me, there is a we. <laughs> and when you can recognize inside of me, there is a we, you can understand that there's different voices coming from different parts of we. There's the voice coming from the Nefesh Shabbat, there's the voice coming from the Nefesh Shalikis. So first of all, the difference between Mashcheni and Arutz is, if I'm being drawn in, or I am doing the work, I'm not being drawn in, I am doing the work, that's a very big difference. When I'm being drawn in, it's coming from above. When I'm doing the work, it's coming from below. Difference number two is, when I'm being drawn in, it only relates to the Nefesh Elikis, which senses the divine music. When I'm doing the work, it's coming from me. And me includes my Nefesh Bahamas. So it's Acharech and Arutza. After you, we shall run. 
what is this work? What is this work with animals? What does it mean to do work with my animals? So what type of work is this? This is going, this is going to explain in the continuation of the Maimer, which we will continue, Bezir Hashem, next, next, next year. The next class is going to be Tuesday, tomorrow morning is a woman's class, 9.45. Bezir Hashem, Thursday morning we'll continue this Maimer, 7.30 a.m. I'm going to take some questions now. Question number one. Okay, somebody wrote here a very, very interesting comment about uh, that this explains a Rashi and Masech debates about Neshama Yaseira on Shabbos, but it's actually on the next piece of the Maimur, so I'm not going to read it now. Next question. Pirkei says, don't speak in an ambiguous way. Make sure that the students understand. Maybe that's why he asks the question, why it says, Mimacharas HaShabbos and not Mimacharas HaPesach. The way I understand the starting of the the offering of the barley is Torah was given in the desert. The Jews ate the manna daily after their matzah ran out. They had animals. What did the animals eat? Did the Jews have barley or wheat to feed the animals? They obviously didn't grow any produce of any type. So what did the animals eat? How did the idea of animals eating barley apply at the time of the mitzvah the Eimer was given in the desert? This was only possible later once the Jews entered Eretz Yisrael and began to farm. You want to know what food the Jews gave the animals in the desert? Interesting question, I never thought about it. Good question, I have to research it. You spoke about running away and not looking back. Is that the idea of why they told Lloyd's wife not to look back? It may be, it may be, may be very well connected. Don't look back because you're going to get pentisofa bavoyne, because you're going to get consumed by what's happening in Zdaim. Yeah, very possible. In fact, in Parshas Vayeru, we have a class a few years ago I gave to the women on the yeshiva.net. It's Parshas Vayeru, the idea of looking back. Some people who get stuck in their past and they become salty. They become a piece of salt. The ability to be able to really let go of my past is not easy. The ability to run and not look back. We want to look back. You speak about integrating the animal soul with the godly soul. So it's interesting. It's interesting that that, uh, we brought offerings of wheat and barley because Svirah Sa'imer was barley. But Shvuah's the Shtei Halech and the two loaves of bread were brought from wheat. You're right, as we will see, because after the after the Sefirah Sa'imer, now you actually bring. Now you actually bring wheat. It's 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 a very good point. Next question, the Tanya says that that the divine soul is enclosed in the animal soul. Does that mean that neuroscience can see effects of the divine soul? Yeah, it's exactly what it means. If the animal soul wouldn't be enclosed in the... If the divine soul wouldn't be enclosed in the animal soul, then neuroscience, which is enclosed in the body, which is enclosed in the brain, the neuroscience wouldn't detect it. But because the divine soul is tucked in, so to speak, not physically, is enclosed, is manifested in the animal soul. And the two souls are, are not living on two different planets. They're fused together. They're layers of consciousness, but they're, they're, 
they're tight. <laughs> they're not only married to each other, but they're, 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 they're integrated. They become one. The, the two souls live together. The, the divine soul can only function in the body through and with the animal soul. So therefore you could see the effects of it on the body. And that's why neuroscience is going to come closer and closer to decipher it, at least with the tools that they have, which of course are limited, but they will come closer and closer to decipher it. You're not muted. Next question. Is it possible that since God is above time and he knows the future, so therefore God said, he was ambiguous just to ultimately prove the Sadducees wrong and the propriety and necessity of the oral tradition. The debate continues today because some Jews try to keep mitzvahs that are written clearly in the Bible, but they will not observe mitzvahs of the oral tradition. So that debate actually still continues. Okay. You're saying that neuroscientists today are saying that our, our free will is really a delusion, doesn't really exist, because the electrical impulses of choice, the electrical impulses that decide what you want to do, what you're going to choose, are there even before you made a conscious decision, which means the decisions are completely internal, unconscious, you're not even choosing it, just a result of your biochemical, uh, uh, physiological processes. So how how are you resolving that? So how are you resolving that, Reb Daniel? What, What are you suggesting? I resolve it by saying... Every type of, of science ultimately only looks at one snippet of reality. And whilst it's true, just like with, for example, creation, you can look at creation and say, like some of the material, uh, like Richard Dawkins, who, who suggests, you know, the whole world's meaningless and we're just meatballs floating through space. It just happens to be, we're conscious. That's his interpretation of the data. In the same way on the neuroscience level, I, we all subjectively feel at this uh, level of... Um, of, of free will, we live on that. Uh, we live within a world of subjectivity. If we were to take that exper- experiment uh, uh, literally, then it, would just, it should smash the whole of law and order and morality in, in our universe. And we de- yet we don't do that because we, we don't live just on the level of neuroscience experiments. That's the only explanation I have. In other words, our will, our rot zone, and our functioning of choice. Is not measurable, and it precedes our electrical impulses. It's just that our measurement of it is limited. Just like you can't measure the the motion of a of a particle and its direction, uh, the momentum at the same time, because it's just not probable. I don't know. That's my thinking. Um, you're saying just like we don't have the tools to measure the motion of a particle and its momentum at the same time, we don't yet have the tools to measure how Rotson and Bhira work. More than we don't have the tools, we can never have the tools, because it's a non-original. Right. You're saying it transcends our tools, th- that process, and what they're seeing is only one, 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 one element of the picture, and they're not having, they don't have access to the soul's choices. Yeah. Okay, you, you, I, think you're say, you're, I think you're onto something. This is a very, very uh, profound... A complicated subject, but this I think I think your point is is very well taken. In other words, every scientist, every psychologist, every person 
needs to always have the humility of knowing that based on the tools that I have presently, I may come to this interpretation and understanding. Tomorrow I may have different tools, or I have to acknowledge that maybe I'll never have different tools. These are the tools that I have, and based on this, I'm putting reality into the box that I find to be perhaps authentic, but I have to have that humility of this is my way of perceiving reality, and maybe I'm unaware of different processes that may be real and may be very authentic and may be deeper. Right? Listen, to, 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 to obliterate the whole concept of free will, even though it's very popular today, right? It's, uh, <laughs> it's a very, very drastic move. You know, it really means that no person is ever responsible for anything, that there's no real uh, ability for any accountability. Uh, because... Is that not what's happening on a gradual level? We have cases in America... Uh, all sorts of cases in America where people have, have got free or have, mitigate, have been seriously there mitigated the circumstances of a, on a trial of murder. There's been, I think there's yeah. a case in America where, uh, where a woman was, um, was uh, d- during menses, was, uh, was uh, acquitted. Right. Is this not a result of where we're moving? This is, this is the concern. Right, right, right. There's no, no accountability. There's no free choice. Yeah. Does yeah. that add to that? Yeah, yeah. So is it possible that the scientists who measure those electrical impulses which lead up to a decision, they're not measuring every single decision. We don't know how a Baruch Hu helps us in certain ways. The Baruch Hu guides us and sometimes he has us make a choice and then it's built in. So it's now a part of us. And we might be reacting to a decision based off of a, a previous choice that we've already come to, that we've already made the right choice on. Mm. Yeah. The Zog's good. Very little bit, you're saying, they only have a snippet, a very small part of the data. Right? Yeah. Okay, Chavre, thank you so much for sharing Thank you for your input and your questions and your feedback. Thank you very much, Rabbi, as always. Everybody have a beautiful and wonderful and inspiring day and a good chaydish. This class is brought to you by the yeshiva.net. Please help us continue the classes. Make even a small contribution at www.theyeshiva.net slash donate.